0: Let's turn back the Gospel of John. Rob's been taking us through uh, from chapter 14. These are some of the things that Jesus teaches uh, in the run-up to Easter, in the run-up to the first Easter uh, and his death. We're picking up uh, chapter 16, verse 16. It's page 1084. And Jesus has just been teaching about The work of the Holy Spirit, but in chapter 16, verse 16, he says this. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, Time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us as your living word, day by day, week by week. Please come with your Holy Spirit and apply it to our hearts this morning as Rob speaks Anoint him, give him freedom of speech. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor. Sometimes I get the feeling as as if when the word is read, we shouldn't add anything to it. We should just leave it like that, because um, the word speaks of its own. But... What we've been doing up until now is, is, is looking at this upper room discourse, if you like, this time that the Lord has had with his disciples, and we now come to the end of it. Uh, by the end of this chapter, we come to the end of that time. And the Lord is now beginning to look into the hearts of his disciples, and he's seeing there emotions that are swirling. He's seeing a lot of confusion. He's seeing a lot of sorrow, even, and maybe fear. These are real men who are facing real problems, and they're not totally unlike the problems that we face today. The impression that these, uh, these men at this time were totally different to you and I is a false impression. They were not especially endowed with anything at this point in time. They are men with uh, faults and, and uh, concerns just as we are today. They're fallible human beings. And in this section, the, the emotions and the sorrow and the confusion and the fear is all going to be addressed by our Lord. And there are a number of themes that come out of it. He talks about joy. You saw that word a number of times. Uh, the word love will come out. The word peace towards the end of this passage. They don't have much love and much joy and peace at the moment. But by the time he's finished speaking, we begin already to them see them begin to wake up As they say, you must be the one then who has come from God. It's a passage which I could preach on for six or seven weeks, but I'm going to try to, in just the next half hour or so, just pull out three specific things. And the first thing I want to talk about is a principle that is worth grasping. There's a principle here that we need to grasp, and I see it in the first six or seven verses. And then I'm going to go on to talk about a promise for us to believe, and finally, a position For us to claim. Verse 16 of this chapter starts with a little bit of confusion, you might say. Where Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. Uh, What's this all about? The disciples certainly get a bit confused and they ask one another, what is this little while? And we we need to understand that because in a sense it's at the heart of what he's going to be talking about. We'll come back to that in just a second. Turn to verse 20 where Jesus begins now to put this all into context and explain it to them. He says, very truly, I tell you, there's another one of those, very truly. In the old version, he used to say, verily, verily, I say unto you. This is really, really important. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then in the next verse, he goes and he uses this analogy of a woman who's giving birth who is filled with pain and agony as the child is being born. But when the child is born, the grief and the agony turns to great joy. Her Emotions change. And he says in verse 22, Then so with you, now is your time of grief. Of course, referring to the the, the crucifixion and so on, and, and their early, very difficult times. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Here's the principle I'd like us to to claim. I'm going to state it like this and then try to explain it. God brings joy into our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. God brings joy to our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? Well, in a sense, the illustration of the woman giving birth to the child explains it. The baby that causes all the pain is the same baby that causes all the joy. It's not a different thing. God transforms the sorrow and the agony and the pain, He transforms it into joy. In birth, God doesn't substitute something else to relieve the mother's pain. Instead, He uses what is already there and He transforms it. Let's illustrate this a little bit further. For those who are parents, a parent knows what it is like to have a young child who is desperately unhappy because, for example, a favorite toy has been broken or a friend has had to go home. And uh, the parent is faced with a choice because the child is hysterical. The choice is now do I, uh, do I fix the situation by giving them a new toy because this one is now broken or by calling up another little friend to come and play uh, to, to stop all the crying to transform, or do I, do I find a way to transform this experience and make it into a new experience? If a mother always gives her child a new toy every time one, get, one gets broken, the child grows up expecting the problem to be solved simply by substitution. Every time I break something, I'll get a new one. If a mother always uh, phones another little friend to come over and play as a substitute, the child will grow up expecting people to come to his or her rescue every time there's a crisis. The result either way is a spoiled child. You'll find it very difficult to cope with disappointing realities. The way of substituting for solving problems is the way of immaturity. The way of transformation is the way of faith and maturity. And if we ever want to mature emotionally and spiritually, we're never going to do it if somebody's always replacing our broken toys. Notice that Jesus did not say that the mother's sorrow and pain was replaced by joy. He says, no, the sorrow was transformed into joy. The same baby that caused the pain causes the joy. And so it is in the Christian life. God delights. He delights in taking the seemingly impossible situations in our lives. Then he adds to those situations the miracles of his grace and he transforms trial into triumph. And sorrow into joy. So that Moses can say to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 23. He can say, the Lord thy God has turned the curse into a blessing. And he does this throughout scriptures. We see the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. See how God transforms that awful situation into real victory. The salvation of the sons of Jacob. God uses the incarceration of the people of Israel in Egypt to mold them into a mighty nation of a million or more who can leave and settle in the promised land. King Saul's murderous pursuit of David transforms David into a real man of God, the one who will write so many of the Psalms that have calmed our hearts on so many occasions. Even Jesus takes the cross, that symbol, as the hymn writer puts it, that symbol of suffering and shame, and he transforms it into a symbol of victory and glory. And once we come to grips with this, this principle, we can see the apostle's dilemma more clearly. So he says, in a little while, verse 16, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you, you will see me. He's making a deliberately puzzling statement. He's speaking in what the Proverbs call a dark saying. It's a little bit hidden and I'm encouraged by that and, uh, because sometimes I don't understand. I really, really don't understand some of what I read in the Scriptures. There are some times it is very, very puzzling. And I'm sure I'm not alone. But what does Jesus mean here? Is he talking about the soon-to-occur events of his crucifixion and resurrection? They're not going to see him. And then shortly thereafter, they will see him uh, when he's risen from the grave. Maybe. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But maybe it's more than that. Is he not possibly talking about the fact that he's ascending and going into heaven where they will no longer see him, but then in a little while they wait, may see him? But you say, well, they, well, there's, you know, what little while? Well, you know, he does say on several occasions in verse 10 and verse 17, I'm going to the Father. He stresses this. And the disciples, yes, they don't live to see his return. But within decades, most of them have have met their death in an awful way and they are ushered into the presence of of the Lord and they do see him. And they do see him in what you might call a little while. In the comparison to eternity, the time that we as the church have been waiting for the coming of our Lord is indeed a little while. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way when he says, for yet a little while... And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. It's almost as if the disciples are a little bit embarrassed uh, to, to uh, show their ignorance. So they start talking to one another. Did you see it there in verses 17, 18, that little section? They're talking to one another. What does he mean? What does he mean? What does he mean? What does he mean? And they, and they whisper to one another. But of course he knows what they're saying. The trouble with sharing our ignorance with one another is we tend to get nowhere. And this is what's happening, and he has to step in, and he has to give them the answer to their question in a little while. We might say, boy, it feels like a long time. And there are a lot of folk right now, and I'm reading it in the papers as you are, and I'm reading it in different news bulletins and Christian bulletins. There are those who feel very strongly that indeed the coming of the Lord might be a lot sooner than we think. I don't have an opinion on that. I don't know. A little while. A mother experiencing birth pains every minute may seem like an hour. Our concept of time changes with our feelings. Time flies when we're happy and it drags when we're sad. 30 minutes in a dentist's chair feels like hours, while hours enjoying one's loved ones' company feels like minutes. The mother feels as though the birth process is taking forever, when in reality it may only be a little while. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus speaks of the bride who mourns while the bridegroom is away. But in a little while, he says, the bridegroom will return for his bride, and then the church will be together with him forever. So the immediate application of this passage may well have been to Speak to the sorrow in the hearts of his disciples and to tell them in a little while whether he's, whether he's speaking about the resurrection or he's speaking about seeing them again in glory. The ultimate application of these verses is for us as well. Particularly those of us who wait his return or we await our reunion with him in death. Seems like a long wait. Wait. And while we wait, sometimes not as patiently as we should, we must continue to bear in mind the principle that we're sharing here. We are to experience growth towards maturity in our Christian lives. We must understand that God works through transformation. That's his pattern of work. He doesn't want to replace things. He wants to renew things. He wants to recreate. He wants to transform that's his way of doing things. That's how God works. And the key word here is joy. He wants to return grief and transform grief into joy. And the writer of scriptures puts it so well when he says, and it was a verse that was one of the most powerful verses to me during my years in Bible college, miles and miles away from home, and times when it was really, really hard I don't know whether you've ever experienced homesickness, but as a young man I felt huge, huge homesickness 15,000 miles away from my, my home. And the verse that came again and again and again was this one. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The principle, God will take everything and anything in our lives and not necessarily substitute it, but he wants to transform it to turn it all into joy. That's what he does for the disciples. So there's a principle there to grasp. But I think the next few verses, verses 23 to 28, are all about a promise. A wonderful promise. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask or ask for in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, the time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying I will not ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I entered the world and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father." If you were to ask me what is the central theme of that passage, I would say it's verse twenty four, where the promise is made very clearly, where Jesus says, Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. What a promise that is. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Interestingly enough, that word ask, there are two different words that are used for it in this chapter sixteen. The word that is used here is a word that simply, sometimes it's translated pray, but it's usually translated ask, and it simply means to ask a question of somebody or to submit a request to somebody, but it's always used when you're asking somebody of equal rank to you. The other word that is used particularly here, though, in verse 24, the word that is used in verse 24, is not that verse word. It's a different word. It's a word that means "ask," or it can be translated again, pray," but it's a word that is only used when you're asking somebody who is superior to you for something. That's the only time it is used, and it is used here in verse 24. In verse 24, we come to those we come, we come to God as those of far lesser rank. Sometimes I think we forget that. When we come to God and we ask for things, we come to Him as as the one who can supply all our needs, and we come to him as one who is so much more than what we are. We come to him as people who have nothing, and we ask for his blessing. We come to him as people, men and women, young people, who can never take anything for granted. We come to him as people who must never think we can take prayer as some kind of slot machine activity. Demanding answers that suit us, but may have little to do with God's plan and God's glory. We ask of a person who is ultimately and infinitely superior to us. In that day, he says, you will no longer ask me anything. This gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? What does he mean by that? He's saying to his disciples, in that day, you will ask me, you won't ask me anything. What day is he referring to? Well, most commentators seem to agree he's referring to the, the day of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some say, well, maybe it's only referring to heaven. But I don't think it refers to heaven because there's no indication of he- in heaven that we're going to do any praying anymore. There's no, no sign of anyone praying in heaven. So, what, what's going on here? Why, why are they not going to ask him anything more, Jesus, in these days? Back in verse 19, you can see that Jesus knows that his disciples want to ask him a question. And he assures them that the the day would soon come when they would not be asking him any more questions. Instead, he says, you're going to ask the Father. He's already talked about this way back in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you pray, I want you to learn to pray directly to the Father. It is he who meets our needs. And I think this was was an important lesson to them. And I don't want to suggest for a minute, there there are a number of you who have come to me and said over the weeks, does that mean we should never pray dear Lord Jesus and pray to Jesus? No, I don't think so. But clearly to me the biblical pattern is, and I see it here and I see it in Matthew 5, that we address our prayers to the Father. And that's special. Sometimes we may find an affinity with the Son, but sometimes we find ourselves so removed from the Father who is the great creator of all of the universe. And he's saying to his disciples here, you've been asking me all these things all along, because I've been with you. Because I've been amongst you, you've you've turned to me and said, Lord, what about this? Or Lord, what about that? I'm going away. So in that day, you're not going to ask me anything else. But guess what? You can ask the Father directly. That's what he's saying here. And that's what he's saying to us this morning. How wonderful is that, that we can address our prayers to the Father directly, because our Father loves us and loves to hear our prayers and wants to meet our needs. While while Jesus was on earth, he met their needs. He was right there with them. Now he's going away, but he says, don't worry. Don't worry. The Father will meet your needs. That's the wonderful promise. We have the privilege of praying to and being heard by the Father himself, Somebody asked me just some time back, when you're praying, what do you think of? When you're praying privately or in a group or maybe even in church, what do you think of? And that was a difficult question for me because I couldn't really answer it all that well. Because when I pray personally, and I'm not saying this is a pattern for anybody else, I have in my mind my own picture of God. I couldn't even begin to describe it to you, but I, I have this image in my mind of God the Creator, this mighty, mighty person. And when I, when I pray, that's all I think about. I try to get my mind away from anything else except this concept of God, the Father, the Creator, and address my prayers to Him, and therefore use the kind of words that I believe are the kind of words that He would want to hear. But in that, in that picture of God, I, as part of that picture, I see the Lord Jesus, And I see the Lord Jesus in his ministry as my high priest and my advocate. Almost saying, yes Lord, you can grant that one. That one's a good one. Yeah, He kind of is ministering on my behalf. I can't explain it fully. But I address my prayers to the Father because he is the one now who can grant all of those prayers. But I know all along that Jesus is there. And that's how I kind of think it through. In verses 25 to 27, Jesus explains to his disciples about a whole new situation. Because of his resurrection and his ascension, and because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a new way in which God is commu- going to communicate with them. He's not going to be there anymore, Jesus. He's going to be gone, so there's going to be a new way of communicating. And he says, though I've been speaking, speaking figuratively, the time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my father. He's not going to speak to them anymore in terms that demand huge amounts of spiritual insight for understanding. He's going to speak to them plainly, and they're going to understand. Up till now, he's been using a lot of images, even in these few chapters. He's been talking about his father's house as if it's a, a house. He's been talking about vines and branches. He's been using different analogies. But that language will change as they become to, become to understand more clearly. And there seems to be a new situation regarding prayer. In verse 23, he's already intimated that he's going to be with the Father, and his ministry will be as our high priest making intercession for us. And I just go to Romans chapter eight. And this is this is this is critical, I think, where Romans Paul speaking to the Roman church says this Who then is the one who condemns no one? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, where is he? He is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. That's the kind of picture I have in my mind when I pray. Christ at the right hand of God, interceding, helping my prayers. Hebrews chapter 7, the writer says, therefore he is able to save completely, Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Although he is gone and the disciples will see him no longer, he will always be there as their high priest to give extra grace to help. And it's the same with us. He's there to give us this extra grace to help us when we sin. He's there as our advocate to restore us when we confess our sin. And he ministers even now in heaven on our behalf, making possible our ministry here on earth. He continues to empower us through his spirit. And I'm starting a new study uh, after Easter on the book of Acts. I've studied it on a no- number of occasions, but I'm going to do it again. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful study. Uh, if, are there any of you who are saying, you know, I'd really like to tackle a particular book and I'd like to study something Get your teeth into the book of Acts. It's one of the longer books, so it'll take you a while. But it's a study that, in which you will discover how entirely the early church depended on prayer for its very existence. They believed in the promises of God, and they simply asked God for what they needed. And I believe that such a study and such practice would do the church immeasurably good today if we were to review regularly what Jesus teaches about prayer in these chapters and we we read in the book of Acts he speaks again and again and again about the joy of praying about the joy of seeing prayer answered and about the joy of meeting the conditions for answered prayer things like obedience and love and I was just reading a biography Um, I read about seven I don't know about, about you but do you read one book at a time or do you read like I do seven books at a time I've got a pile of books next to my bed this high and I'm reading all of them and one of them is a biography of the great saint of, of Bristol, George Müller, that great man who worked amongst the orphans. And uh, he says of prayer, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but releasing God's willingness. And that's been very, very powerful. So there's a wonderful promise here. There's that principle to grasp that God wants to transform our sorrow and, and turn it into joy. And there's the promise here that we can pray and we have direct access in our prayers to God the Father. The creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus is there to support those prayers. And the Holy Spirit is there to encourage us to keep on praying. There's no excuse. And finally there's a position to claim. A new position that we should be claiming. Verse 29 I'm just going to read a few parts from 29 to 33. Then Jesus' disciples said, so they speak again. They haven't spoken much in the last few, few chapters, have they? But here they speak again for the last time in these chapters. The disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you've come from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and has in fact come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that, you may, so that in me you may have peace. And then a bit further down, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world." I said earlier, the disciples, by the time we get to this part of the chapter, the disciples seem to have come out of their stupor. They seem to have begun to understand things a little bit more clearly. And this is why they say, now we can see it. Now we're getting the hang of what you're trying to say here. And they make a wonderful statement of faith. This makes us believe that you came from God. They claim that at last they understand what he's been teaching them. Now, of course, this claim is a little bit presumptuous because they don't quite understand everything just yet. Future events will show, uh, for example, that they still haven't really grasped this idea of resurrection because when he first rose from the dead, what did they think? They don't understand and after his resurrection, even if you read in the beginning of the book of Acts, they're still a little bewildered about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel and so on. We're not criticizing them. Uh, we today certainly have been taught the Bible since we were this big, and we still don't understand most of it. But they, they, do, they do come to a position where they, they, they understand a lot more, and they, they seem to have grown in their faith and their assurance. Now we can see, they say, now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you come from God. It's a staggering statement of faith. And it looks almost as if the Lord kind of, when he says, do you now believe, it almost sounds like he's being a bit cynical or skeptical, but not at all. That's not what it's meant to be. Maybe the translation doesn't help us. What he's really doing is is saying with gracious acceptance, he's saying, so now you do believe. Thank God for that. That's wonderful. We know this because in the next chapter... In verses 6 to 8, we see Jesus reporting, as it were, to his father and saying to his father, uh, they were yours and you gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. Now they know everything. So he, he accepts that they have come to a much greater degree of understanding. Jesus shows real confidence in his disciples here and their understanding of the basics of the faith. And he's quick to approve the growing evidences of their faith. But... And this is the but. It's possible to have faith and understanding and assurance and still fail him. Unless we put our faith into practice, unless we apply our understanding and rest on our assurance, we're going to fail when time of trial comes. And that's exactly what happens to these disciples very shortly after this. Jesus warns them what's going to happen. He's already warned Peter specifically back some chapters that he's going to deny his Lord three times before the dawn on that Friday morning. And it is not John but Matthew who has Jesus quoting the Old Testament when he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. They will disappear as it were. It should have been a warning to Peter not to follow so closely when Jesus was arrested. Jesus knew it wasn't safe for them and he told the temple guards to let them go. But if Jesus has promised us one thing, one thing, he's promised never to leave us alone. I will be with you, he says in Matthew 28, verse 20. I will be with you until the very end of the age. The disciples are quick to desert him. We know that. Peter does deny him. Peter, James, and John go into the garden with him. They go that far, but they can't stay awake. They desert him even at that time. And yet even in his distress and his own sense of desolation, Jesus knows that the Father will never desert him. He says in this passage, yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. What an awful experience it must have been for, for Jesus on the cross, when in that one moment, just that one moment, and I don't know how long it took when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For that one moment he feels desolation. And I don't understand it all, I really don't, but it seems as if in that moment, in a very brief passage of time, as the sin of the world was laid on his shoulders seems that his own father could not look upon him. And momentarily, he was separated, as it were, from the father. And what an experience that must have been from him, from the one who had been eternally with his father. But I look at that, and I look at the way we, we ourselves desert him. And I say to myself, in that moment, when Christ felt so alone, he felt alone so that we might never have to feel alone. And I try to sum that up for myself. In that moment, he was alone so that we might never have to be alone. He was forsaken so that we might never have to be forsaken. I'm still getting, still getting the hang of that. And right at the end of the chapter, and I'm almost done, verse 33, he kind of sums it all up. He sums up, in fact, in many ways, the whole of chapter 13 to 16. And he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so right at the end, the message is very, very clear that his disciples will be able to find peace in this world of tribulation and notice the deliberate contrast here. This is why I say this is about claiming a new position. Notice the difference between this in me, you will have peace, in the world, you will have trouble. In me, you will have peace, in the world, you will have trouble. This is the promise that we need to claim. And it's the new position in which we need to occupy. We are, this morning, in Christ. And what does that mean? That means we can overcome the world. We are in Christ. The word peace, shalom, is a word which has many, many meanings. And one of the meanings is it's the possession of adequate resources. You have everything you need to succeed. That's what the word shalom tends to mean. And indeed, in Christ, we have all the resources we need to be overcomers in this world. And this peace demands not only adequate resources, I believe peace also depends on on appropriate relationships. Because spiritual resources depend on spiritual relationships. Being in Christ is absolutely the key. Because in, in the world, we have nothing. But in Christ, we have all we ever need. You know, believers tend to be grouped, I think, into two categories. You get Christians who are overcome and then Christians who are overcomers. And you've met both and you've been both. So many Christians I hear, and not, not, I'm not speaking about folk here particularly, although once or twice I've come across it. Christians can sound so terribly overcome. You say, how are you today? And they say something like, oh, I'm bearing up. It could be a lot worse, I guess, or I really shouldn't grumble. I'm sorry, but that sounds more overcome than overcomer to me. John, writing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, says this. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, even our faith. The world wants to overcome us. There's no doubt about that. I felt that. I tell you, my brothers and sisters, i felt that over the last six or seven weeks more than i felt it in my entire life. The world wanting to overcome me through all sorts of uh, physical pain and ailment and all sorts of temptation. And yet the victory that overcomes the world is found in our faith. And Satan uses the world around us to, to pressurize and to persecute us. And the world shouts at us loudly, conform, 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 doesn't want us to be any different. And yet when we yield ourselves to Jesus and we put our trust in him, he makes us overcomers and we are no longer just overcome. And I believe we're here this morning as we get closer and closer to the celebration of that wonderful time of Easter and the resurrection. We're here today to claim a new position in Christ to be overcomers in Christ, to claim victory. Reportedly through these passages, Jesus says, be of good cheer. Nowadays we say, cheer up. There's so much to cheer up about. We have his pardon, we have his power, we have his presence, we have his victory in this life and the next. So I say to you this morning, cheer up. Cheer up, we are overcomers, because he has overcome sin and death and the grave for us. So, yes, there's a principle to grasp. God takes our sorrow and transforms it into joy. That's the principle. But this transformation cannot work unless we claim this particular promise, that we believe that he can give us this joy and peace in answer to prayer. God has ordained in his wonderful sovereign strategy that his great work will be accomplished. Listen to this. God has decreed in his sovereign strategy that his work will be accomplished through our prayer. The prayer of his people. But we're unable to pray effectively unless we claim our new position in the army of Christ. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is also a preface to what is known as Christ's high priestly prayer found in the next chapter, chapter 17. He's been teaching us his word, and now in chapter 17 he's going to pray. The word and the prayer must always go together. I say to you this morning in closing, there's great joy, great joy when we permit God to transform our sorrow into joy. I submit to you this morning there is great joy when you see God answering your prayers. And often the greatest joy comes when we, in the power of His Holy Spirit, discover ourselves to be overcomers and not merely overcome. Father, we thank you this morning that in your spirit we have these things. We, we have a, a whole new way of seeing life and understanding life. Lord, we pray this morning that we would be overcomers in you because you have overcome the world. We give our hearts to you this morning and say, Lord, be an overcomer in our hearts. Give us victory, we pray this week.